Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. De novo, 510K, 513G, pre-submission, ah, which submission makes the most sense? I know, it's so confusing at times. And that's why I've got Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast to try to make a little bit of sense of these various FDA submission types and when each of them might apply to your product development journey. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, John Spear. And with me today, I have, frankly, you know, you've you've heard him on our podcast so many times, offering all kinds of pearls of wisdom. And you know, I'm sure today will be uh, just the same. And with me is Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be with you and your audience today. All right. Well, Mike, I want to talk about a few things that have come up recently in various conversations, emails, things that I've been aware of uh, here at Greenlight.guru. And, and it's in, you know, it's right up your alley. It's, it's all about regulatory today. And specifically, we're going to talk about some of the different FDA submissions. And the reason I want to bring that up is is I think there is some real confusion about some of these different types of submissions. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about 510Ks, de novos, 513Gs, pre-subs. And I was wondering first if, if maybe you can give a little bit of um, a perspective on when to submit a 510K versus a de novo. You know, where, where are they the same? Where are they different? Do you mind sharing a few thoughts about that? Absolutely, John. It's a terrific question. I'm sure that the vast majority of your audience is very familiar with the 510K. That is, after all, the workhorse of the medical device industry. But many of them probably are not familiar with, maybe they've at least heard of the de novo, but I doubt too many have first-hand experience with it because uh, it is used uh, not very frequently. So let's do a quick compare and contrast between the two. So first and foremost, both are pathways to market for medical devices here in the United States for low to moderate risk medical devices. In other words, class one and class two devices. The key difference is that the 510K, as you well know, relies on the concept of substantial equivalence. In other words, basically at the end of the day, we have to show that our device is basically the same as, i.e. substantial equivalence to another device, what we call a predicate device, that's already on the market here in the United States. And by the way, when we say basically the same as, what we mean is both in terms of labeling as well as technology. We have to show that the device is basically the same uh, as the other device in terms of labeling and also technology. We have to do both of those things. Mm -hmm. There is no requirement to show that a 510K device needs to be safe and effective. That, that requirement does not exist anywhere in the 510K regulation. In other words, you have to show that your device is basically the same as another that's already on the market. Since the other device is already on the market, it's assumed to be safe and effective. 
Therefore, if your device is the same, it's assumed to be safe and effective. So in other words, the regulatory logic is if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Unfortunately, that doesn't always work, but that's the, the logic that it's based on. On the de novo side, there is no substantial equivalence. De novos are designed truly for new and novel, low and moderate risk devices. So you don't have the baggage, if you will, that you do on the 510K side to show that your device is basically the same as another. So with the de novo, you're starting out with truly a blank slate when it comes to the, the technology and, and especially in terms of the, the, the labeling. In other words, let me explain it this way. So you can spin the 510K in many different ways, but at the end of the day, you have to show, as I said, that your device is basically the same as another. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's an advantage. Sometimes it's not. In the de novo, you don't have that limitation. You start out with a, with a blank slate, a blank canvas, if you will, in terms of labeling, and you can paint onto that canvas literally anything that you want. Of course, you've got to be able to, to prove it. You've got to be able to substantiate it, but you can put, paint onto that canvas anything that you want. And that, when you do this correctly, that offers some very significant competitive advantages um, because one of the disadvantages of a successful de novo is that a successful de novo will lead to a predicate device, a device that somebody else can use to bring their device mm -hmm. onto the market as a 510K using your de novo as a predicate. But if you create that high-level labeling in a way that would make it more difficult for your competitors to do, to, to match, and I've got several examples if you want, that makes it more difficult for them. So it's, it's, it's not... It's not as strong as uh, as uh, you know a patent in an intellectual property sense of the word, but it is as about as strong of, of a, a barrier to entry to your competition in the regulatory world that we can make it. So that's a, a quick okay. compare and contrast. Of course, there are many other differences as well. Sure, I want to pick on a couple of things there that you you talked about. Uh, from a 510K standpoint, that it's really not about demonstrating safety and and efficacy, but you know. How, how do you, you know, whenever somebody, the 510K requires things like biocompatibility, sterilization, you know, electrical safety, things of that nature. I mean, wouldn't you say that those are some level of demonstrating product safety? Yeah, I guess so. You're right. Good point. I should be a little careful about overgeneralizing. Obviously, those are, are all important things uh, that you just ticked off. But to me, from a biomedical engineering perspective, those are no-brainers. Right. I mean, those are, those are givens, right? Yeah. yeah, those are things that we should be doing regardless. Uh, let me let me explain it this way, John. So in in one way, and and by the way, I've got not to be uh, you know not to toot my own horn here, but I've got uh, as much if not more de novo experience than than uh, than anybody. Um, it's not a commonly used path, um, as you know. Uh, here's some some numbers for you. Uh, the total number of de novos that have come through the FDA since it was created about a dozen years ago, is 186. That's the total number of de, de novos as of, as of yesterday. Um, compared to 510Ks, there's been you know, somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of 40,000 510Ks that have come through since 1976. And just this calendar year, 17 de novos in, in about the first six months of, of 2017, 17 de novos have come through. Wow. Um, 
So, not, so, so, not so you're, the, you're, you're the De Novo man is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a nice title. I love the De Novo. It's one of my many favorite pathways to market for medical devices here in the United States. Um, but I love all of the pathways. It's kind of like asking a parent who's their favorite. <laughs> but, the, uh, but, but, but coming back to the, uh, to the safety and efficacy piece. So in a couple of ways, the De Novo is a little more difficult. And safety and then the 510K and safety and efficacy is one. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, there is no requirement in the 510K that, that, that you must show your device is safe and effective. The reason is the other device is already on the market. It's assumed to be safe and effective. Therefore, if yours is the same, then, then that assumption, you know, applies to you. But mm-hmm. in the de novo, there is no such assumption. Right. In other words, you have to show that your device is safe and effective There is because there is no predicate. Now, you can use, um, and this gets into much more sophisticated regulatory strategy, you can use, and I frequently in de novos use, other devices as predicates, but not in the um, substantial equivalence sense of the word predicate. I use predicates, for example, as part of my risk mitigation strategy. Ah, I, I see. Use predicates, for example, as part of my my safety and efficacy. Mm-hmm. In other words, why reinvent the wheel if there are other devices that have similar functions, similar labeling, similar technology, what have you? How sort of um, uh, big borrow and steal, so to speak, mm-hmm. to use that information to mitigate the amount of of new work of new testing that I have to do. But bottom line, you are starting out with a blank slate. Maybe I shouldn't use this comparison because it'll probably scare some of your audience. But the (laughs) De Novo, in that sense, is kind of like the PMA. There is no underlining uh, assumption of safety and efficacy. And this surprises people. I've got several devices that are going through FDA right now as De Novos. And uh, that's one of the difficult things that companies have to, un- to understand. They have a hard time swallowing that pill because they're so used to the 510K mentality where basically all you have to show is that your device is the same as the other person's. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, it, and as you talked a little bit about that and in sort of the, the – a bit of uh, similarity, at least on the, the surface, between a de novo and a PMA, I think it was you and I that were, we were talking once – about that de novo path and don't let me put words in your mouth of course but but i remember leaving that conversation thinking ah a de novo is kind of like a patent of sorts because you know you get to sort of kind of define the the barriers to entry and you get to to you know kind of you know it's a bit of a novelty because the whole premise behind a de novo is that there's not a predicate so from a competitive uh, standpoint from a business strategy standpoint, there's there's some strengths to that because it gives you that opportunity. Obviously, the there are a few more hurdles that that you may have to get through on that. But can you talk a little bit about you know Denovo and maybe even a little on a PMA? Yeah, you know, I know a lot of people uh, are like you said, I think afraid of that path because the perception is PMA it means uh, difficult, time consuming, expensive, and yeah, I mean I just on the surface of 510k submission is to the FDA cost somewhere on the order. And my numbers are estimates. They're not exact, but somewhere on the order of like 5,000. Whereas like a 
PMA, if I recall, is something like 250000 just for the submission part. But talk a little bit about you know, some of that exclusivity that one might get with a, a de novo and, and maybe uh, a little bit on like PMA side. Well, that's a great question, John. And by the way, since you mentioned user fees, for the moment, one small advantage, granted it is a very small advantage of the de novo, uh, is that there is no user fee for the de novo. Although Congress is changing that, and there's going to probably be a user fee being implemented for the de novo later this year. But for the moment, there is no user fee. And by the way, another small advantage, we may talk a little bit about the pre-submission meetings a little later in our conversation today. Another small advantage of a de novo is that if you're going specifically for a de novo pre-sub, mm-hmm. there, are several, there are about a half a dozen different types of pre-subs. The de novo is one of them. That has a slightly higher priority in terms of scheduling oh, wow. meetings than, than many of the others. So those are a couple of small advantages. But what we, what you were referring to a moment ago, John, is something I call competitive regulatory strategy. Yeah. This is a, this is a, a topic that I've talked a lot about and I've put out some columns and some, some podcasts and I'd be happy to go into that in, in more detail. But let me just back up for a second to the, 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 the best, the easiest way I can explain to the audience the de novo is think of a Band-Aid. Today, Band-Aids are ubiquitous. But back in the day, there were no Band-Aids. So if we were the very first company to bring a Band-Aid onto the market here in the United States, John, what would be its default classification? What's the what's the, the class three classification of any new medical device? That's exactly right. You passed class three. A, a for the day. <laughs> yes. Class three. So so basically, we would be treating that Band-Aid. We would be putting it into the same classification or risk bucket as other products like totally implantable artificial hearts. Now, it shouldn't take an MD or a PhD or an RAC after somebody's name to appreciate that, gee, maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense to treat a Band-Aid like an artificial heart to treat it to the same level of scrutiny in terms of benchtop animal clinical testing and so on, just because it's new. Mm -hmm. So de novo comes down to one and only one thing, risk mitigation. Mm -hmm. We have to go into FDA and argue that yes, our Band-Aid is new. There is no, there's nothing like it out there. There are no predicates, but it doesn't make sense to treat it as an artificial heart. And here's why. Instead, it should be a uh, class two, and here's why, or a class one, and here's why. Everything else to the de novo is just a matter of paperwork. It's just icing on the cake. Sure. That's the crux of the de novo. Okay. So back now in terms of uh, competitive regulatory strategy, I'll give you a quick example. A few years ago, a company came to me. They had a sterilization product. It was kind of like an autoclave. Uh, not an autoclave, but kind of like it. And they said to, uh, to me, Mike, how do we bring this onto the market? Because they were tempted to bring it onto the market, as many do as a 510K. And there would be nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what the majority of people would do. But remember, John, as I've said before, average regulatory professionals know the rules. The best ones know the exceptions. <laughs> I said to them, you can bring it onto the market as a 510K, but before you do that, you know, think about this. You're going to be essentially creating a me too. Mm-hmm. And therefore, why would anybody use your product, you know, as opposed to the 50 or 100 other products out there that do, you know, basically the same thing? So I said to them, tell me about their, te- about your technology. And they did. It turns out, long story short, that they were able to achieve the same level of sterilization as their competitors, but at a significantly lower temperature point. 
Mm. And so I said to them, okay, why don't we do this instead of a 510K as a de novo? And we, and we include that, that low level, low, low level temperature claim Mm -hmm. in our high level labeling, which is exactly what we did. And, uh, remember earlier, as I said, one of the disadvantages of the de novo is that a successful de novo creates a predicate that somebody else can use to do a 510K. But now we've made it more difficult for them to do that because by including that low level temperature claim in our high level labeling, now they can't make a substantial equivalence mm. argument to our technology until they meet our technology. And oh, by the way, if we own the intellectual property on that technology, that ain't going to happen anytime soon. So that's right. a very sophisticated way of using regulatory strategy to your to your business advantage. And at least in my experience, John, and you can perhaps agree or disagree, but most regulatory folks don't even think in those terms. No. They just view the, the regulatory process as a series of hoops that they yes. have to jump through, and I just don't view it that way at all. Yes, I, I, I mean, I, you're right. I mean, I think we're, timeline is like the, the driver sometimes, and it's like figure out, and, and don't mishear me either, and I'm sure you would agree there, and we don't, it's probably a whole different topic for a whole different conversation, but, uh, but there is some advantage to figuring out the, the lowest barrier to entry you know, from a product strategy standpoint to get a, a product to market, start generating revenue. But, but uh, that may not be your end-all, be-all product with all the bells and whistles. So, you know, there's, this is a, there's, there's a bit of art to this, but there's a lot of strategy to this. And this is why a guy like Mike Drews uh, shines in this <laughs> space because he figures out all those ways to navigate those, those waters, so to speak. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the kind words. And speaking of strategy, and I perhaps may have used this metaphor in one of our discussions before, uh, but I characterize the entire relationship between the company and the FDA as a poker game, mm-hmm. in every sense of the word. And just because somebody uh, understands the rules of poker doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a good poker player, and it certainly doesn't mean that they're going to win the game. I want to do everything that I can, legal, of course. I don't want to be wearing any orange jumpsuits in order to win the game. So strategy here is absolutely key. And let me mention one last thing about sure. the 510K into the novo, and maybe this will sort of transition us into the, the pre-subtopic, which we'll yeah. spend a moment talking about. Um, you know, a lot of people tell me that they have 510K experience and they're familiar with the 510K. But it's also become obvious to me after my 25 years of playing this game that many people use the 510K. Most do not use it well. And here's yeah. how I, here's what I mean by that. Let me share with you some statistics for your, for your audience. 75% of 510Ks that are submitted to FDA today, 75% of them are rejected first time out of the box. And of those that are rejected, 85% of them are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. And for those in the audience that are working in the PMA side of the world, it's even worse. 89% of PMAs are rejected by FDA. Holy cow. The box. They, they lead to what's called a major deficiency letter. Mm-hmm. I find those statistics to be appalling. They're, they're it's pretty crazy. embarrassing. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we've regrettably, and I perhaps shouldn't say this, but our industry has devolved, not evolved, but evolved mm. to the point where we're treating the FDA as essentially our elementary school teacher. Will you, you know, here's my homework assignment. Will you please mark it up and give it back to me? And I'm sorry, John, but that's not the way this game is supposed to be played. 
And so when I see companies, especially some of the largest medical device companies on earth, announce that, you know, they've had a submission bounce back for whatever reason, I just, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but I just kind of laugh mm -hmm. because virtually all of those rejections are, are totally avoidable by going to the FDA in advance, by communicating with them in the form of a pre-submission meeting or some other way yeah. in order to make sure that everybody is on the same page, that we're working, uh, you know, that we're, that we're pulling in the same direction. Um, I hear a lot of my regulatory friends, they say their goal is to get their 510K cleared or their de novo or their PMA approved. That has never been my goal because, quite frankly, any money yeah. can do that. Right. My goal is to get my 510K cleared or my PMA approved, ideally first time out of the box if I can. If I can't, with the minimum of ping pongs, a Q&A is going back and forth. So am I successful 100% of the time? No. But I can't say that I am in the 11 to 25% and not in the 75 to 89%. And there's a lot of secret ingredients that go into my secret sauce, but the most important <laughs> is communication with the agency. Okay. Um, yeah. And one last thing, I set the bar very, very high. Mm -hmm. I view it this way. If I get any question coming back on a submission, I view that as a failure, a 100% failure, um, because I work really hard to get all of my questions answered in, uh, sorry, all of FDA's questions answered in advance, such that once the submission goes in, assuming that the data shows what we say it's going to show, now it's just a matter of people putting their signatures and having it work through the system and you're done. But if yeah. you apply that standard across the board in our industry, well, almost everybody in the in, in the class would fail. Yeah. We can do better. Yeah. Well, uh, those are those are great words and 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 like you said, it's probably you know, considering there's a couple other submissions that I threw out that would be nice to get a little bit of insights on. Let's let's transition a bit and talk about 513G and compare that and contrast that a bit with pre-submission. When should you, you know, do a 513G versus a pre-sub? And you and I have talked a little bit in the past and then we have other podcast episodes and, and things where we've talked about that pre-submission a time or two. So folks, if you haven't listened to those episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I would encourage you uh, to look back in the archives on that pre-submission topic. But talk a little bit about 513G and and you know if there's some some uh, salient points uh, versus a pre-sub, that would be great to to learn some of the nuances. So that's a great question, John. So both the mechanisms that you're describing here, the pre-sub as well as the five five thirteen G, both of them are methods that we have our mechanisms to communicate with the agency. There are other methods beyond that as well, but those are two of them. The pre-submission meeting, as we've discussed in, as you mentioned in podcasts before, is basically an opportunity for you to go to the FDA in advance of your submission, how early in the process you should go, the development process, that's a topic of a different discussion. Mm -hmm. You go in advance of your submission. And here's my, my approach. You explain to them, here's my device, here's the way it works, this is what it does, this is our regulatory strategy, this is what we're going to say uh, about it in terms of labeling, this is the testing that we've done, this is the testing that we are yet going to do. In other words, you lay your cards on the table, so to speak, and FDA will hopefully say, oh, that's great, we look forward to seeing your final results and your submission in a couple of months, or hold on a second, you know, we don't quite see it that way, and that's when the poker game, that's when the negotiation begins. So the so I'm sorry, the, the pre-sub process is an opportunity for us to do exactly that. And by the way, 
the pre-sub in my book is nothing new. The guidance for the pre-sub came out now almost three years ago. Right. But some of us were doing the equivalent of this, what I call the old-fashioned meet and greet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 20 plus years ago. And uh, perhaps I shouldn't say this, um, you know, in a in a public recording like this, but I find it very unfortunate that FDA has seemed to go out of its way. This is not a criticism, but just an, uh, an observation out of its way to make it more difficult, not easier, but more difficult for companies in the FDA to communicate with one another. But that's a that's a topic of a different discussion. Yeah, but, you know, on that on that point, though, Mike, I mean, I, I've worked with enough companies in my career that that there has been very few companies have actually taken advantage of that opportunity to actually have a real conversation with FDA. So, you know, maybe on the flip side of that, maybe what FDA has done is actually sparked or encouraged those companies who had this a fear of FDA into having a, a conversation with them. Well, you're right, John, and, and thank you for pointing that out. I do, to a certain extent, stand corrected. The frequency of communication in terms of pre-subs is, since that guidance was created, has increased. As a matter of fact, prior to our conversation, I checked some of the most current statistics from Madufa. Last calendar year in 2016, there were about a little over 2,300 pre-sub uh. requests. Uh, in other words, uh, pre-sub meeting requests. About two-thirds of them led to actual meetings, which meant about a third of them were were not prepared, were not put together well enough to, to justify yeah. having a, a pre-sub meeting. So you're right. The frequency of communication uh, in terms of the pre-sub has increased, obviously. What I meant in terms of uh, making it more difficult is just mechanistically. In other oh, words, I got you. Yeah, quite yeah. frankly, why do I have to spend so much time and money preparing for a pre-sub? And let me tell you, preparing for a successful pre-sub, it is a lot of work. There's no sure. question about it. You know, why can't I just, like in the olden days, call somebody up literally on the mm-hmm. phone and say, hey, let's talk about this for 10 or 15 minutes and, you know, we come to a decision and we're done. You know, or come down there and say, yeah, let's put it this way. As you know, John, you know, I'm, I work as a consultant for the FDA as well as Health Canada and a few other organizations. I can tell you that my best conversations that I have with my <laughs> regulatory friends are not in the government buildings. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah and, and they're not documented and they're not documented in pre-subs either, I'm sure. So. That's, that's right. But they're held in the, uh, you know, in the, in the pubs surrounding the Beltway yeah. or Ottawa or, you know, what have you. Anyway, let's shift over now to the 513G. So the 513G technically is what we call a request for information. There's different forms of the 513G, but I think the one that you're referring to here probably would be the request for classification. Yes. So, for example, if you're working in an area where there is no predicate, like in the de novo, as we talked about earlier, you could consider doing a 513G request to make the argument that our device, it's a new device, therefore it has not been classified. We think it should be class two, and here's why, or it should be class one, and here's why. Unfortunately, there are user fees associated with the 513G. They are not that high, but there are user fees. And I mentioned there's no user fees with the de novo yet, uh, although there probably will be. There's no user fees with the pre-sub yet, although there probably will be. Right. I mean, I hate to say it, as everybody knows, you know, politics yeah. aside, where go- yeah. our government is looking for all the sources of money that they can get. So when would you use a 513G over a uh, pre-sub? I'll be honest with you. 
in the vast majority of times, uh, probably at least 80 to 90%, maybe more, I will be more inclined to do a pre-sub as opposed to 513G for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which gives me the opportunity to present, you know, whatever I want, including a classification argument. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the first things that FDA will likely come back to you and say, uh, we can't give you a determination on classification in a pre-sub because, after all, nothing in the pre-sub that FDA says is binding. Right. Nothing in the pre-sub that the company says is binding. So that street runs in two directions. But what I often say in scenarios like that is, look, I understand that uh, that nothing is binding, and I understand that uh, you know we're still early in the process. But let's take advantage of having a captive audience. You know, we're mm-hmm. all in the room. You know, we're, you, you've seen our information, you've heard our presentation. What is your gut feel? What is your thinking? Are we going in the same direction? Is there a reasonable chance right. that we can meet in the middle somewhere? Because if it's not. You know, let's let's talk about it. I mean, I was in a pre-sub meeting last year, John, where we end ended the presentation and we wanted to have a discussion. Nobody said anything. I could hear the crickets. <laughs> I got so frustrated. And again, perhaps I shouldn't say this in a recorded call. I got so frustrated. I said, look, we want to have a discussion. But one of the underlining assumptions of the word discussion is that there's more than yeah, that's two way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, suffice it to say, John, not everybody shares my same sense of humor. Yeah. You know, well. so I will do whatever I can to push people gently, pol- um, you know, politely and so on. But this is what I meant also earlier when I said that, uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of companies are having more communication. I'm just not sure mm-hmm. how productive that communication is because the statistics, you know, that I just shared with you mm-hmm. are still true. Yeah, they're so crazy. Well, folks, I mean, this is just really we're just we're just introducing these topics at a very very high level. Uh, each of these topics, five thirteen Gs, pre subs, five ten Ks, and it was, I mean, there are there could be week long conferences that you can attend on on the nitty gritty details of all of these things. And of course, you know, Mike is. Uh, de novo guy, <laughs> uh, but also has a lot of experience with uh, all of these other types of regulatory submissions, the ones we spoke about today and, and many that we did not. So I would encourage you if you have questions about whether or not to do a 513G versus a pre-sub or what about a de novo versus 510K or anything in that realm, I would encourage you to contact Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Mike, thank you for sharing some of these insights today. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. And the very last thing I would just leave your audience with, and we've, we've mentioned this in the past, but I think it, uh, it warrants repeating, is, by, you know, absolutely we should all have a healthy respect for the FDA and the job that they do, but we should absolutely not fear them. Yeah. And we should not fear going to talk to them in advance of our, of our submission. Whether you do it using a pre-sub or a 513G or something else, quite frankly, I could care less. The most important thing is that we have a communication, have a dialogue, kind of like you and I are, are talking about right Absolutely. now. We have, a, we have a discussion because if you don't, then you, uh, you, know, you run the risk of you know, just becoming another one of those statistics. And uh, obviously the excess time and money uh, that it takes to get your device on the market, you know, mm-hmm. that adds up very quickly. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And folks... You know, Greenlight.Guru, we're here to help simplify some of those processes that you have to deal with. I mean, yeah, as you're preparing for this regulatory submission, there are things like design controls and risk 
that uh, you should be working on because uh, in a lot of these submissions, you know, you, you need to be able to demonstrate things like substantial equivalence or safety or efficacy and those sorts of things. And that's, you know, in large respect, the basic premise of what design controls are all about. And, and risk is, you know, certainly an, an important element to med device uh, product development, med device manufacturing these days as well. So we built our platform to help with that. But, you know, it's got a whole lot more than that. You know, you're going to need that quality system as you go to market and Greenlight Ducker is, help, is here to help you with that. So if you'd like to learn more about our software platform and how we can help, you can always reach out to us. Go to greenlight.guru and uh, request more information and, and somebody from our team would be happy to have a conversation with you. So thank you uh, again to Mike, Drew's Vascular Sciences. This is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory and your host of the Global Medical Device Podcast.